Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Brennan, excited to have you on the show, man. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ethan. My absolute pleasure. We always like to get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before founding Patch, I worked at a wide variety of software businesses, both uh, Sonder and Shopify. Before that, studied chemical engineering at a school called McGill. Uh, up in Montreal. And that's actually how I was my kind of first foray into climate action, essentially. So the whole reason I studied chemical engineering was I initially thought I was going to work in some sort of low carbon energy system. That ended up not working out. I only got jobs in oil and gas versus like nuclear or renewables. And so I became a programmer, did a bunch of startup stuff. And then in the last 18 months or so, I've been working on Patch full time. Very cool. So when you say you did a bunch of startup stuff, what does that mean? Yeah, so primarily working on programming, so actually software development, so building software to help, in the case of Shopify, merchants sell goods, and in the case of Sonder, helping our operations and supply chain teams manage inventory across the about 35 cities and 5,000 plus uh, apartments that Sonder managed. So wrote a bunch of different software, and then I would eventually move into product or product management, which is all about figuring out uh, what you have to build versus how you're going to build it. Right on. And where did your interest in climate action originate? What made you decide to get into this kind of work after having sounds like a pretty broad background? Yeah. So I initially studied going back to, you know, that's why I said how I got formally educated was to work in something in climate. Now, before then, admittedly, I don't really remember. It feels like it's very, it's kind of a few things you can spend your time on that I think are kind of bigger than yourself, climate change being one of them. And so I put a huge emphasis or premium on that. And so when I was, I had already matched up with my co-founder, Aaron Grunfeld, back in March of 2020, uh, we had already decided we were going to start a business. And so the kind of next step was, well, what are we going to do? And I really wanted to spend my time working on fighting climate change. At the end of the day, if you're going to put like 60 or 70 hours work in some, into something, I really wanted it to be on something a little more mission driven so that even if things didn't work out for us for whatever reason, I would still feel like our time was well spent moving the entire climate conversation forward. And so that's kind of how we, we dove into a specific problem. Well, I love that. I mean, you're a young guy, man. What made you think that you could start a business? What, what made you want to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, primarily being in startups, I mean, a lot of them, at least the ones that I had worked on were founded by university dropouts in the case of, um, mm. in the case of Sonder, where the founders were actually only a year or two older than myself. And so, it was really kind of came down to just having good role models and kind of seeing that at the end of the day, if you're creative and can find a particular problem that you can solve and solve it better than it's historically been solved before, um, there's kind of nothing else really limiting you. I mean, I think we also had a really kind of privileged kind of perspective or context that we were in because we joined a successful startup, which already kind of puts a halo effect on you, as well as uh, we were in San Francisco at the time where there's so much capital and ambition and uh, encouragement of people to build things, right? So, you know, if I had a very difficult or different, excuse me, upbringing where 
Um, you know, I wasn't born in New York. I didn't have student debt and all these other things. I think the outcome could have been super different. But because I had this like lucky sequence of uh, experiences, then uh, I was kind of put in a situation where, you know, we felt like we could get the job done. That that's a fair response, man. I, yeah, and I'm just messing with you as well. I started my business when I was 22. Um, I will ask you before we kind of start getting into the details. How have the uh, 60 to 70 hour work weeks for 18 months been going? Good. I mean, I, I love it, you know, man. I'm I'm looking forward to my my two weeks off at the end of the year for the holidays. Sure. You know, we're filming this on December 10th, so last week is my last week of the, of the year, and then I'm gonna take two weeks off. Um, and you know been working a little bit less lately because you just really just hired a phenomenal team. So it was pretty, pretty difficult, candidly, uh, the first year or so when it was just myself, my co-founder, maybe two or three other people, where the five of us were working incredibly, incredibly hard. But now we're 25 and on track to being about 60 in three to four months from now, um, which was, although there's more work, there's also the load is more evenly distributed. Um, and as you know, I found it has become a little bit better at delegating and understanding, you know, what should you be working on versus someone else? And so it's become a little bit easier as of late where it's a little bit less, you know, the work is a little bit less in the weeds and maybe a little bit uh, higher level or higher leverage. That's incredible, man. I'm, I'm so excited to dive into it. That's, that's some pretty fast growth. Um, I'm excited to talk about uh, everything. Oh, I had one, one more thing, uh, whatever. Um, can we talk about the difference between being carbon positive and being carbon negative before we start getting into the details of what your business actually does. I think there's, it's a little confusing about this idea of drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere or there's carbon neutral, carbon negative, there's all these terms around. If you wanted to just shed some light on what exactly the distinction is between those things. Yeah, absolutely. So typically that's used in the context of organizations or businesses, but sometimes these terms are also used in the frame of, of an individual, but we can focus on businesses because Patch primarily sells to businesses. So uh, when you're a company, your operation today emits carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, whether it's from electricity, from your supply chain, from giant vehicles, air travel, um, there's kind of some sort of negative environmental effect or externality associated with kind of creating GDP, operating a business. And so the whole idea behind patch is really to mitigate that or compensate that. So typically when you hear this term carbon negative or carbon neutral, it refers to some sort of uh, negation or compensation of those emissions. So say you emit 10 tons of carbon dioxide a year as an individual. Um, if you remove five tons of carbon in that particular year, uh, you might be considered like climate positive, which is like not a protected term. Right, like this isn't like uh, there's no organization like there's certified organic or anything like that saying what is or is not climate positive. It's kind of more of a um, uh, colloquialism, if you will, where it's actually just used in, in kind of non-technical context because you're not perfect, right? You still have some, you have some net emissions still, and you're still emitting in the first place, but you're kind of moving moving the the ball in the right direction. Carbon neutral refers to actually negating the full. 10 tons in that specific example where you emitted 10 tons and you found a way to offset or remove the remaining 10 tons. So you're neutral, right? It's like net zero. You've had no net negative effect on the planet. And then carbon negative is actually going up and above and beyond and saying, Hey, if I emit 10 tons this year, I'm going to actually remove 20. So I'm actually, it's almost like my existence uh, as an organization in this case is actually positive for the environment because I'm undoing the harm produced by someone else. So again, 
all these terms actually aren't pro protected right now. We're actually a little bit in the wild west when it comes to what is net zero, what is carbon neutral. So we're actually really excited to see some guidance coming from organizations like SBTI and eventually the UN is going to have some guidance as well on what is actually carbon neutral versus net zero versus something else. But right now it's all highly self-regulated. So going back to your point about it being confusing, it's, it's confusing for us as well because it, the kind of, there's not clear guidance exactly. And so there's a lot of self-regulating going on. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned that all businesses have this, this footprint or whatever we, you'd want to call it because the terms are obviously not exactly firm, as you said. But, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, I'd love to see a day where not, not even necessarily all businesses are continually drawing down carbon, but all businesses exist, not maybe solely to promote more life on the planet, but their actions directly lead to this regenerative economy, this idealized vision of the world that, that I'm looking for. And that's kind of the stuff I'm trying to pursue. And I think that businesses like yours are a, a huge piece in us getting there. So I, I, I appreciate that. Now, remember the other thing I wanted to ask you is, are, is um, I'm curious if you are familiar with like any of Ray Dalio's work as you've been starting your business. I just wanted to ask that. Um, is environmental work or like his books? Because I've, I've read like principles, but I'm not. Yeah, prin just principles. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm familiar with the book principles. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, I love I love that framework for looking at things like through principles. And I'm like someone who, like you who has like going to be having 60 employees in the future. I feel like the organizations, the values, the work principles could be really, really valuable in that case. I, I don't know. I just figured I would throw that out. But let's let's get into talking about like what is patch? Where did the idea come from? Yeah, absolutely. So Patch, for those who don't know, is what is we call an API-first marketplace for carbon removal. So breaking that down, first and foremost, we are a marketplace for carbon removal, where on the supply side of the marketplace, just like Airbnb, um, it basically brings buyers and sellers of a specific good together. In the case of Patch, you have carbon removal developers on the supply side. Uh, so these are people whose sole job is to sequester carbon dioxide in a variety of different ways from reforestation to direct air capture to eight or nine other major chemical pathways in between. And they're selling their capacity to sequester carbon on patch to primarily businesses. So companies that want to be net zero or carbon neutral are coming to patch to discover, access and transact with all these different forms of carbon removal. The API first piece refers to the idea that you can do this programmatically. So for those who don't know, an API is how computers talk to each other. So when you're building software um, and you know a specific piece of software needs information from another software system, whether it's like Instagram talking to Facebook uh, or Gmail talking to um, some sort of external uh, Google Chrome extension, that's all APIs behind the scenes. So that's how code or software systems are actually built that integrate with each other. And so what Patch does is we provide that same type of functionality, computers talk, talking to one another for carbon markets and carbon removal. So net result is you can actually access and remove carbon from the Afterpay app, which is a, a patch customer of ours, the buy now, pay later provider, where as you buy something in the Afterpay app, you can actually choose to offset it from the app. And that's all powered by the code patches develop and given to its customers. Right. Okay. So you guys are providing, is it just like software? Is there hardware? And then how are you like measuring the validity of these carbon credits that are being bought and sold on your, I guess it's like a network, right? Kind of sounds similar to like eBay, like you're creating for like people who are looking for carbon credits. 
Yeah, totally. So eBay is, is, is was actually one of the first digital marketplaces. So it's a great analog. Um, now, as far as how it works, essentially there's a way, there's a software system that is patched where you store the ability to uh, sequester carbon. So like carbon credits are an electronic derivative where something phys physically happens in the real world. Someone measures that physical event. In this case, it's carbon being sequestered. And then it creates a digital record on what is called a carbon offset registry, which is this public ledger that anyone can look at. Um, and we take that ledger information and load it into patch. So all that to say is there is no hardware element. It's exclusively software. Patch is cool. only a software business. Now, to address your validation or verification idea, patch is not a validator nor a verifier. And the reason for that is there's a huge conflict of interest. Um, if we were at the kind of analog I like drawing is if we were both the securities exchange and the credit rating agency, like that's highly problematic, right? You need to keep those those kind of concerns separated to ensure there's not any bad behavior. And so we'll structurally never be a verifier ever. Um, and so as a result, we need to partner with verifiers to pull their information into the platform and then expose it to buyers. Um, so it's kind of like a, a neutral third party effectively evaluating the different types of inventory on the patch platform. So what's going on, man? You, you and your business partner, you, you just came up with this idea. You just saw the need and we're like, let's make it, let's create it, let's build it. And you had this coding background. So you just got after it and just did it. So the, it kind of comes, we kind of took this first principles approach to, to come up with the idea of Pat. So if you look at the most recent IPCC report, you'll see that in order to stay beneath uh, one and a half degrees of heating, which is a kind of a very common benchmark for those who are unfamiliar, um, that we need to stay beneath, otherwise there can be a, of global warming, otherwise there can be a huge number of negative environmental uh, kind of secondary and tertiary effects. In order to stay beneath that benchmark, we need to remove between 10 to 15 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year for the next four to five decades. So for context, that's 15 trillion kilograms of CO2 per, per month, or uh, per year, excuse me. And yeah, our thought process was, well, that's going to come from hundreds of billions of transactions, which require hundreds of billions of carbon calculations to figure out what that intensity is. So what's the footprint of an airplane ride or a hamburger eaten or a car trip? Uh, and then hundreds of billions capital of capital allocations in order to get that CO2 out of the air. And our thought process was, well, whenever hundreds of billions of anything happen a year, it's usually a computer doing that work. So how do you build a software system or an API that can augment the existing systems and interfaces we already use today, whether that's you know, Uber, your personal finance management application, uh, some sort of checkout or payment experience. We kind of have the source data already to understand the negative environmental associations or externalities associated with commerce. We just need a way to augment those flows and automate the climate action that we need in order to hit these goals. And so that's kind of how we came up with the idea of patch. It was very much um, like if this, then that, rather than, oh, we're going to talk to 100 customers and, and iterate to an idea. Um, and then once we built the product ourselves and started speaking to people, it kind of clicked for a lot of a lot of specifically technology companies because that's who we primarily sell to. So that's how we got to where we are. That's that's incredible, man. Um, I, I'm curious how it relates to um, reductions in like the emissions, like the operating reductions of a business versus them just like purchasing credits for to like kind of offset their emissions. Like what what is what's going on in that in between there? Yeah, totally. So we we are primarily in the carbon 
calculation and kind of carbon compensation space. So right. there's kind of three major elements to getting to net zero. It's all about understanding what your footprint is, actively reducing it. Uh, so that's the reduction piece you're talking about or decarbonizing uh, mm -hmm. and then removing whatever's left over. We really view ourselves as a complement to sustainability teams where we really encourage them to allocate every single uh, in um, in-house sustainability headcount they can afford to decarbonizing. And the reason for that is that decarbonization is a highly industry and in some cases, even company specific exercise with the way you decarbonize a coffee shop versus an airline are fundamentally different, but the way you can compensate or remove carbon is actually the same because it's all just tons left over. And so patch makes a lot of sense in this case, because we're able to aggregate and achieve scale economies for this compensation element, while at the same time, allowing the internal folks at these particular companies we're selling to, to focus on driving their footprint down. So we really view ourselves as an augmentation or complements the internal sustainability teams and decarbonization efforts rather than on an alternative. Man, this is genius. You've got your you've got your niche and you're like leaning into it so hard. I, I think it's I think it's so cool. I think it's amazing. Um, I'm curious. You're, you're, yeah, no, it's really it's really cool, man. What, what are your like personal thoughts on some of the most promising um, negative emission technologies that exist today? To create these yeah, offsets. that's a great question. That's a great question. So, you know, I personally am a huge fan of mineralization. So mineralization as a broad category is all about taking carbon dioxide, reacting it with, with, with some sort of, um, uh, it's typically a, a mineral or some sort of fluid, which results in the carbon dioxide becoming a carbonate. Now, the specific chemistry doesn't really matter. But essentially what it's doing is it's taking CO2, reacting with something in, into such that it enters a new stable form such that it can't re-enter the atmosphere. The reason that this is so exciting versus something like direct air capture is because the economics per ton are much, much lower. So a ton of mineralization on patch usually costs on the scale of like 100 to $150 per ton versus something like direct air capture is on the scale of $600 per ton. And the primary reason for that is direct air capture, for example, is uh, relies on taking you know the 410, 420 parts per million um, concentration of CO2 in the ambient air, running it through a solvent, and trying to like concentrate that CO2. That's a very very hard thing to do, and it's using energy to do that. And so it's incredibly energy intensive, where they have to have a source of typically renewable or geothermal energy to drive that facility. So it limits the number of locations they can build in because they don't want to use fossil fuel energy to power the DAC plant. That doesn't make any sense. Um, as well as it takes a lot of energy to actually drive those fans through those fluids. Versus mineralization, a great example is something like enhanced weathering, where you're actually crushing up this rock called olivine, putting it on a coast, and then allowing the actual energy from the waves to react with the CO2 in the ocean to draw down carbon. And so it's a much more passive uh, and uh, although it doesn't happen as quickly, the amount of energy required and therefore the cost per ton is much, much lower because the only cost, the only thing you're paying for is deploying the actual, uh, in this case, olivine and crushing it and deploying it rather than with director capture, you actually have to run a facility all the time. And so it's a huge kind of like um, constant operating cost associated with that versus enhanced weather. There's like a fixed upfront cost. So. I'm a huge fan of mineralization personally because it kind of is it's pretty affordable, candidly, compared to it's permanent for 10,000 plus years, which is the same thing with that, but you have to pay about four or five times the price. 
Right. All right. So let me let me give a little quick slowed down summary for people who aren't very versed in like de- uh, what's it carbon sequestration. We're talking about two different um, ways of doing it. One of them being having giant fans suck carbon that's in the atmosphere out of the air and then using chemicals to essentially suck up the carbon and then shooting that into the ground and having it store there or turning it into jet fuel. That's what carbon engineering's model is versus he's talking about mineralization, which is taking this rock olivine, crushing it up, laying it on the beach. And because it has this special chemical property, is it because of like solar radiation that like the, the CO2 goes into the, the olivine or do you know exactly how that works? Yeah. So the way it works is, um, olivine naturally reacts with co2 um, just ambient in the air but it's reacting with these big rocks typically or sometimes the olivine is underground and so what they're doing is they're taking the olivine above ground where there's more co2 they're crushing the olivine so the same amount of volume of rock will actually have a much higher surface area um and which is right. sometimes unintuitive um like, but like if you have like this big like sphere and cut it in half the um the volume will be the same because you have the two halves, but you have this whole other kind of like half circle or a full circle where the cut is. So you've gotten much more surface area. So if you do that tens and tens and tens of times, the surface area goes up dramatically, but the volume stays the same. The reason that's important is because one of the ways to accelerate or catalyze a chemical reaction, including the one where olivine reacts with CO2, is to increase the surface area. So it increases the surface area. So now the ambient CO2 is reacting with the olivine at a much, much higher rate. And then sometimes you actually, in the case of enhanced weathering, not just weathering, but enhanced weathering, you put that crushed olivine on coasts. And when you put it on the coast, where basically along the beach, the water um, uh, from, from the beach, from the ocean, actually kind of cast, um, kind of interacting with the, with the olivine will actually accelerate the chemical reaction even further because now you're mixing it. So if you increase the surface area and mix it, it actually accelerates this chemical reaction that normally happens, but at a much, much lower time scale. So it's still taking advantage of a natural chemical reaction, but dramatically accelerating by having a little bit of man, man-made intervention. Very cool. I, I know you're not an olivine expert, but how like common is this material on Earth? And then this issues with, I mean, not issues, but you know, we have, still have to mine it and crush it up. Like how, how large scale can that process truly go? Yeah, so uh, it's true, I'm not an olivine expert. Um, that being said, it is actually a fairly abundant uh, mineral, not as abundant as, say, um, like silicon or sand, but it is fairly abundant. Like, it is not difficult to find specifically in North America and Europe. Um, and as far as crushing it, we have very, very large um, scale mining operations already, whether it's for steel or gold or anything else. So it's really just a matter of retrofitting those existing supply chains to, instead of being mining you know, uh, granite or, or mm-hmm. gold or some other ore, you're mining olivine uh, with the intent of using it to sequester carbon dioxide. So the existing mining supply chain is there already. It's just a matter of making sure you're mining something different. Yeah, the thing is, is the only way for this business model to be um, sustainable is for it to be based on carbon credits, though. Like people love gold, you know, they'll make jewelry and stuff and gold has innate value. It sounds like this material, the value is going to come specifically from its ability to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is why um, software like yours is very, very useful in this situation. Yeah, exactly. Very, very cool. Um, So we've just talked about two different ways to sequester carbon. I wanted to ask you, and then with your experience, you say you're working mostly with businesses. Is that right? That's correct. 
do they have any is there any sort of incentive for them to diverse like if you're investing in securities you want to have a bunch of different um stocks so if one company fails the other one can still keep your uh, portfolio growing is there any benefit for companies to diversify their like carbon portfolio their carbon credit portfolio excuse me yeah absolutely i mean the biggest piece is some projects can actually fail still so every form of carbon removal technology has its strengths and its weaknesses whether you're removing carbon with forestry and there's a forest fire in the forest that you were growing you know this happens in my home state california all the time where we actually there was an offset um forest that burnt down um last year in the um i'm forgetting which forest fire it was um i think it was dixie um, where it's actually a meaningful amount of carbon credits are basically rendered valueless because a section of forest had burnt down. Damn. In the case of um, like Allvine, for example, you're exposed to uh, kind of like commodities and commodities pricing risk, where if you know the price of oil goes up really dramatically or any other energy source you're using to actually mine the olivine, uh, or if the access to the olivine is, is no longer possible for whatever reason, there's a, there is a fulfillment problem, which is actually something patch works on mitigating because we actually hold a lot of the capital back until we get proof of fulfillment. Um, but I'll kind of approach that later. So the reason you would do this is actually all about, well, we're after allocating $100,000 a year or a million dollars a year, we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket. Because if something doesn't work out, you're going to be in a really tough spot versus, you know, if some project fails for whatever reason, maybe you're only missing five or 10% of your budget rather than the full 100%. Right. Okay, very interesting. So we touched on this a little bit in the beginning. Um, so people might not know the term carbon footprint was actually coined by was it was it Exxon? Do you know? It was coined by an oil uh, company, the term carbon footprint. Oh, carbon footprint. Yes, yes. Sorry, I was thinking carbon offset. Yeah, so which was the UN. But yes, carbon footprint was an oil company. I think it was Exxon, but I'm not 100% sure. And we talked about this a bit in the beginning, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, how close you think we are to a standardized metric for measuring either individual or corporate environmental impacts. Because we talk a lot about CO2. Um, sometimes we talk about methane in terms of CO2 equivalents. I'm wondering if there's going to be a way to calculate. I know there's this ecological footprint network, but it'd be great if everyone could operate on like simple, like we, we convert it into CO2 to make it simple, but environmental imprints uh, or impacts are, are more complicated than that. So I wanted to just hear your thoughts on this because you're obviously deep into this space. Yeah, absolutely. So we work with a lot of carbon accounting tools like Persephone or Plan A, and that's the exact problem they're solving. So Patch is not a kind of um, carbon accounting house. So I'm, they're gonna be far, they're gonna be guests that are far more knowledgeable than I on this subject. Well, you're exactly right, where people are working both in the private sector as well as in government to standardize the reporting and disclosure of this information. So actually just the other day, Europe, uh, maybe six months ago or so, has actually beginning to pass legislation where banks have to disclose in a standardized way the carbon intensity of all of their investments. So whatever you're financing, what are the uh, essentially the secondary and tertiary environmental effects of making those investments. So if you're investing in oil or a car company, whatever it might be, again, they're standardizing in CO2 um, equivalent. But again, there's all these other things going on behind the scenes that you mentioned, whether it's related to methane, which kind of that information is kind of hidden. The way you solve for methane versus CO2 is actually kind of different depending on the situation you're in. Uh, it doesn't actually affect uh, report on the 
effects on water or loss of biodiversity, but we don't really have those mechanisms yet. But there are groups or organizations working to standardize that information. Um, but that's not something PATS is working on, and we haven't really, uh, we haven't reached consensus in the environmental community yet on the best way to do that. Ah, uh, the C word, consensus. It's, it's a tough one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my, my apologies. One, one more uh, question that's not directly well, it is related to what you're doing, but it's um, in regards to the individual or the average person reducing their impacts or actually becoming carbon positive. I know that you work specifically with businesses, but I wanted to ask you your thoughts about how to make it as easy as possible. Like if, if there was a huge uprising of lots of people buying credits or, and changing their behavior at the same time, you know, one person being um, sequestering 10 times as much CO2 as the average person emits that can have a huge impact. So I just wanted to ask you your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, that's the, ideally in most cases, and this isn't actually in Patch's best interest, but a ton prevented is, is always better than a ton emitted and then, and then removed. And so for me, you know, if you're thinking about individual action, the biggest thing really needs to come down. The biggest kind of thing is actually doing less stuff in a lot of cases, right? So whether it's buying fewer things or flying to fewer places, um, usually doing things, at least today in the way our supply chains are currently structured is what actually results in some sort of negative environmental externality. And so like, you know, I personally don't own a car. I live in a city with great public transit. So I usually walk or bike, um, but that obviously doesn't work for everybody. Um, and I think that's something that's really important, which is I'm actually personally not a huge fan of, uh, you know, pushing the problem of sustainability onto individuals. Sure. And the reason for that is that individuals, while collectively are powerful when in the context of voting or maybe where they spend money, um, they're not all really well equipped to make the same types of trade-offs. Uh, because they might not have the right tools available to them or the right resources because they might not have access to good public transit or something like that. And so I'm actually a huge fan of actually pushing policymakers and, and businesses actually to heat, take the, the um, kind of brunt of the load, if you will. Um, and if people are given good options that make sense for their lives, they will take them. No one actively, or maybe very few people actively want to harm the environment they just have other priorities whether it's like paying rent or taking care of their children or whatever it might be that makes that kind of trade-off more difficult but if you make it really easy for them to do the right thing most most cases people will make that decision but only businesses and policymakers in a position to do that brennan man well well put you've obviously you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff uh, i i appreciate it yeah it's really, my really job cool. <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts on kind of continuing to uh, expand the growth of this carbon removal revolution, whether it's through regenerative agriculture or technological solutions or kind of, you know, mixed options? How can we continue to get more funding and more innovation into this space? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, it's funny, I'm almost going to go against what I just said now on collective action. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to what consumers want and both policymakers businesses and investors, again, listen to on aggregate, what, you know, 50% plus one people actually do. And so we're kind of seeing that already where, you know, the fastest 10 growing B2C businesses right now are all, all have some sort of sustainability element associated with them, whether that's uh, Everlane or Allbirds or something like this. And so this collective action is actually putting a lot of pressure on businesses. And as a result, 
also putting pressure on investors to only invest in more sustainable businesses because they see consumer behavior in aggregate where sustainable businesses perform better. So as a result, they will give more money to sustainable businesses. And then the non-sustainable businesses will have a tough time getting financing and will either need to change their behavior or cease to exist. And so we're kind of already beginning to see this feedback loop where kind of first and foremost, it's actually all about spending your dollars and voting with your dollars and actually voting at the ballot box, right? That's kind of element number one. Now, more tactically on carbon removal specifically, because that's all about how you just catalyze sustainable action rather than catalyzing carbon removal. Um, we only do about 1% of the carbon removal we need to be doing right now on an annualized basis. So we need to become around 100x bigger in the next five to 10 years. And the way we're gonna do that primarily uh, is gonna really come through driving financing and capital into these different types of carbon removal projects. One, by making it easy or automate its allocate to these different types of projects. That's the underlying thesis of patch, right? So that's kind of, that'll be my one plug, if you will, where uh, we believe that we kind of are coming up with a way to actually kind of move or direct financing to these types of projects. Uh, the second is to standardize the broader ecosystem. So whenever something actually becomes 100x larger, you're gonna need standards and some amount uh, or some number of rules and regulations to, to play within, right? So uh, you have to make sure you have the right data in place to grow um, to grow the foundation upon. Um, so whether this is like a federally regulated offset program or a state level offset program, whatever it might be, I think there needs, there's a little more guidance required because right now the ecosystem is actually for the most part self-regulated, which at scale will be problematic. Um, and then third, it's actually all about how you attract institutional investors to help them understand there is market pull for these different things, right? So once you have people buying for them and the rules are in place, how do you actually really, uh, you know, probably bad metaphor, but throw the fuel on the fire, if you will, to really <laughs> accel accelerate or catalyze the growth of this ecosystem. So these are kind of the key things that we really need to keep in mind for carbon removal specifically, because it is such a nascent ecosystem. So I know you're like still pretty new, but obviously your growth is explosive. Have you seen any sort of change in just, I mean, it's been a pretty pivotal 18 months for all of, of human history, essentially, because you, you started your business at a very interesting time. Have you seen things continuing to, to tick up and you're seeing this accelerating growth in your space right now or? Absolutely. So the carbon, voluntary carbon markets, which is the ecosystem we operated in, doubled between 2020 uh, and 2019. Fantastic. So they literally, like 100% CAGR is, is pretty phenomenal, right? There aren't very many assets besides maybe like crypto that has that kind of growth rate. Um, and so like the overall interest and intent is definitely there, um, as well as we actually began seeing a little bit more um, kind of carbon market talk, if you will, at the most recent um, COP, at COP26 in Glasgow, where when we were there, it was actually when Article 6 was actually adopted, which is kind of going back to the rules of the road piece, layering on more rules and more structures to how carbon markets both domestically and internationally needs to be working in order to allow them to scale. Speaking of crypto, um, I obviously you're aware of the, of the space. What, what are your thoughts on the environmental impacts of like the blockchain? Is there anything we can do about that? Yeah, there, I mean, there definitely is. Uh, I mean, so I think first and foremost, like the- Can we explain what the environmental impacts is of the blockchain as well? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, um, Blockchain technology in general is a way to decentralize, uh, is a decentralized way to compute stuff. It doesn't actually really matter what it's computing. And at a high level, there are what are called miners um, all over the world where they, they get to get algorithmic problems to uh, kind of solve using computers. And then as a result, people get cryptocurrency in exchange for them. That requires a huge amount of electricity. 
And that electricity, if it's not coming from a renewable source or a source of like nuclear electricity, uh, it's going to have a carbon footprint. And so when people talk about the environmental um, effects of cryptocurrency, they're usually referring to the fact that uh, there's a huge amount of electricity being consumed by cryptocurrencies. Now, I think the first piece is a little bit unfair to kind of pick on crypto specifically because the traditional financial infrastructure, while like on a per transaction basis, the footprint is much, much lower. Traditional finance also pours hundreds of billions of dollars into like fossil fuels. And so while I am not a um, uh, crypto maximalist, I think the idea of thinking crypto is going to go away or that it is fundamentally unjust or evil is also really not the right way to look at that problem. And so if you keep that in mind and say, okay, crypto is here to stay, how do we solve this? First and foremost is moving uh, the kind of key mining pools or key sources of crypto to renewable energy, right? So how do we prevent the footprint from uh, even happening in the first place? Well, it's actually making such that the compute that's taking place is renewable. It doesn't, have, doesn't need to have a footprint in the first place. The second step is, okay, if there is a footprint, how do you offset or compensate it? And that's kind of where patch mm -hmm. comes in. We actually have a series of APIs where you can actually footprint the carbon intensity of a Bitcoin transaction or gas on the Ethereum network. And we work with a wide range of crypto companies to help them understand what their footprint is, how they can reduce it, and then actually ultimately offset it. Um, so there's two kind of key pieces there with respect to just kind of decarbonizing crypto holistically. And then, you know, if you can't, it's actually been massively lucrative for a lot of people engaging in cryptocurrencies. And so they actually tend, tend to have excess funds to allocate to something like carbon compensation, which is great. Um, and so, you know, I think it's naive to think it's going away and it's actually a fairly solvable problem compared to some other, I think, more difficult kind of decarbonization problems like airlines or, or um, sea freight. Um, and candidly, like they're the new kid on the block. And so they're going to get a little bit more, um, I think, pressure from, uh, you know, regulators or, or maybe passive observers who maybe are looking for a scapegoat. Very cool. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, man. I really appreciate it. I wanted to of ask course. you about that. Um, so th the main product, if you will, that your company or service that your company offers is this platform and this software that corporations can utilize. But you also um, offer this content like creation product. I'm not sure if it's automatically generated by um, your computer software, but you also offer this thing for companies to you can you can create content for them so they can advertise their um their carbon offsets. I was just wondering like what the response is for people who are using your content and why you're uh, you're choosing to offer this as well alongside your 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 platform. Totally. So. I mean, the biggest piece or biggest problem, in our opinion, with carbon market state has been a lack of transparency, where people don't actually understand what they're buying. Um, and as a result, that sometimes leads to misset expectations, but it also is actually like a missed opportunity on the marketing front, because companies are doing something that are inherently that is inherently good, uh, but they have no compelling way to tell that narrative. And so what Patch is really focused on is helping people understand what are they actually buying? What are the positive environmental benefits associated with what they're doing? And then what kind of kind of narrative or story or content can they actually put together to help share that out to someone, whether that's their investors or, or, um, or customers. Um, and so really the kind of key element here is we really want to like decommodify carbon where not every ton is created equal. There is nuance associated with the 
geography, the permanence, the underlying scientific data, and the chemical pathway associated with carbon sequestration, and actually helping people use that to their advantage when telling a story um, to kind of share when they've actually taken some sort of climate action. Perfect. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. Um, I want to ask you as we're kind of getting to the end here, if you think or, or how or if you think it's possible for us to create an economic incentive for these large corporations, it doesn't even have to be large, to actually go beyond just net zero and actually become carbon positive. Is there any way to, in to create incentives for that? It could be like a superhero company. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we kind of have this for renewable energy already and with electric vehicle purchasing, which is massive tax benefits. And I don't th I think that's the government's really good at that, which is actually controlling who gets what kind of preferred treatment from a tax treatment perspective. And I'd encourage them to follow the same mechanism. It really worked incredibly well for um, subsidies associated with renewable energy. And so I don't really see a reason why it can't work for carbon removal and carbon offsetting mechanisms as well. Um, the government, I think, has a lot of weaknesses, but it's something it is really good at is having a huge amount of leverage when rolling out financial incentives, specifically as it relates to the tax code. And so I'd encourage them to lean on what they're strong at and, and use that to drive the conversation forward. So we'll have to give them some more money, huh? Uh, well, or they can come from somewhere else, right? I mean, if you look at the way what we pay, if you look at electric vehicle um, tax incentives, when you average um, average it out across all the electric vehicle tax incentives across the U.S. and the average cost per ton of carbon emissions avoided when switching to an electric vehicle, the U.S. government is paying $400 per ton of carbon. Now, mineralization is $200 per ton. So we don't even need half the incentive that EVs are already getting in order to make carbon removal free for everyone. And so, you know, I think in some ways it's tough because it's not an apples to apples comparison, like a, a ton avoided versus a ton emitted and then removed. But it's also like the U.S. government has a massive balance sheet and there is actually like space within the budget as it exists today to do a little bit of reallocation rather than actually um, needing to like print more money or, or raise taxes. Right. Cool, man. Well, it's been great to just hear your perspective for a little while. I think it's really awesome what you're doing. And so you're the founder of a startup company. You're obviously thinking 20, 30 years down the line. Um, I'm curious where you think we're going to be at, as in the U.S. or the world, in five years. And then where do you think Patch is going to be at in five years? What's your your big step forward? What do you What do you see? What's your vision? Yeah, absolutely. So I, well, I certainly hope we're much further along our, our you know, uh, carbon journey, if you will, in the next five years. Uh, and in the next five years, Patch is going to be operating on hundreds of megatons, if not gigaton scale by yeah. then. So that along with them, hopefully there are like three or four other patch like companies also doing something similar so we can actually hit our goal. Patch certainly like there's no shop patch does it on their own. Um, we really need to have a positive sun mindset and really bring in a lot more people into kind of this ecosystem to help grow the pie. Um, and so with patch being at that specific type of scale, we're gonna both, you know, be transacting that type of volume and we'll need the necessary software to enable to support that but we'll also be creating a lot more um, kind of more tooling and financial structures and financial tools for our suppliers actually so we kind of consider our um, kind of buy side customers our core customer right now and i expect that's actually invert over time 
And for us to actually be putting a much, much larger emphasis from a product development perspective on our suppliers rather than our buyers, much like we did at Shopify, actually. What makes you say that? Because they're going to be the ones that are doing the work and need the most support. So when you have a um, market that grows 100x in five to 10 years, there's going to be a huge amount of information and operational complexity associated with that. And software is really good at solving a lot of those problems, uh, whether that's inventory management, international payments, um, translation of all your content. There are always kind of common problems that are not specific to sequestering carbon that software is really well suited to solve. And so how do we keep those carbon removal developers focused on removing carbon and not all these admin problems, we're going to build software for them and help them support them along that journey. Brendan, man, what you're doing is really cool. You're a very sharp, inspirational guy. I've just been really happy to have you on here for a little bit. My last question is, what advice do you have for young people who are passionate about building a better economy and a better world? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, it's funny because I always go back to bring it back to the very beginning. Uh, I was just talking about this yesterday about how it's actually very hard to give like truly like universal or useful advice just because the way people got to where they're at is is just fundamentally unique. And so the way I perceive the world or a particular problem uh, probably doesn't really map to a lot of how other people see the problem. Um, that being said, I think although it's very um easy to say, I still, it is a useful framework to have, which is there are all these problems out in the world related to climate or something else. Someone is going to have to fix them. And like, if you really look yourself like critically in the mirror, I think there's actually, if you got kind of go down the list of like reasons why you can't do it versus why you should be able to do it. I think you're going to realize that a lot of those um, structures in place might be artificial. Now, again, that's a very privileged thing to say because there are a bunch of things that are structurally holding other people back. That being said, though, I there are a lot of people even in my circle or in the kind of that I've interacted with or other entrepreneurs who once they kind of went through that kind of mental exercise, although it is fundamentally harder for some people, they kind of realize it was still a fairly liberating experience to go through that exercise because you realize the list is actually a lot shorter than maybe you initially anticipated. And so another, certainly not a ahead. silver bullet, but it's still it's still a useful thought experiment to go through. Because you might realize that there's maybe only one or two hurdles to overcome rather than 10. And maybe two hurdles is is, uh, is something you can get done. I, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And yeah, and one thing to always remember is that these challenges, these systems were all made by other people who are, you know, no smarter than you are. You just got to go out there and just make, make take action and things will, will change. That's just how the world works. Brendan, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. It's It's been a true pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ethan. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, everybody. And we'll see you soon. Take care. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.